Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of excellence. Uh, what are we doing here? Talking about chapter seven. Oh, not many comments on today's chapter. Must have been a slow day. Um, what do you think Tolstoy meant by saying of Maya when her father informs her that Andre has been killed, that her face changed and something lit up in her beautiful, luminous eyes? It was as if joy, the supreme joy, independent of sorrows and joys of this world, poured over the deep sorrow that was in her. Seems odd to speak of supreme joy in a moment of grief. What is happening here? Uh, yeah, that was odd. It's a good question. And whose actions do you feel are wiser regarding the uncertainty of Andre's fate? His father who prepares for the worst and orders a gravestone, or his sister who prays for him as though he were living and continues to expect his return. Ripster 66 said, Maya's faith is deep and her mixed emotions upon learning her brother's fate are, I imagine, a response to her deep faith that either God will protect her brother and bring him back or bring him joyfully to heaven. It, in times of intense emotional distress, religious faith steps up and provides comfort. I love the polar opposite reactions of Maya and her father, totally fitting with what we've seen of their characters so far. I relate more and more to the father, assuming the worst. It can only be a powerful surprise if it turns out Andre lives. Assuming he is alive is fine, but the possibility of huge disappointment is risky to me. For Maya, who already has a strong belief system, believing Andre is alive is the natural response to ease and easy for her to do. Her father, rooted in analytical thinking, comes to the most logical conclusion after sending people to search for his son. Warren Kovofi said, Old Bolkonski continues to be one of my favourite characters. He's come off as cruel and intimidating, but I think it's becoming more clear just how much he loves his family, despite his cold demeanour. It seems that news of Andre's supposed death has taken a very hard toll on Prince Bolkonski, so much so that his rigid routines are even impacted. I also found it interesting that he can't bring himself to tell Lisa. Instead, it seems he rather... He would rather Maya bear the burden. And yet Lisa still doesn't know. Oh dear. Um, I feel like, oh, what's the move there? She's heavily pregnant, due any day. And her husband is supposedly dead. Um, you know, what do you, what's it, yeah, it's a tough call. I mean, I suppose you tell him, I suppose you tell him, right? But I can also understand why that would be such a hard thing to do. Now, what chapter was that? That's chapter 7. Okay, so we need chapter 8 here. Oh, God. Well, I'll be ordering into the microphone. That's not good. All right, chapter 8 <clears throat> is here. <clears throat> and it goes like this. Dearest, said the little princess after breakfast on the morning of the 19th of March, and her downy little lip rose from old habit. But as sorrow was manifest in every smile, the sound of every word, and even every footstep in that house since the terrible news had come, so now the smile of the little princess, influenced by the general mood, though without knowing its cause, was such as to remind one still more of the general sorrow. Dearest, I'm afraid this morning's Fushtik, Fushtuk is breakfast, uh, as Foka, the cook calls it, has disagreed with me. "'What's the matter with you, my darling? You look pale. "'Oh, you are very pale,' said Princess Mary in alarm, "'running with her soft, ponderous steps. 
up to her sister-in-law. Your Excellency should not my, uh, Mary Bogdanova be sent for, said one of the maids, who was present. Mary Bogdanova was a midwife from the neighbouring town who had been at Bald Hills for the last fortnight. Oh yes, assented Princess Mary. Perhaps that's it. I'll go. Courage, my angel. She kissed Lisa. was about to leave the room. Oh, no, no. And besides the pallor and the physical suffering on the little princess's face, an expression of childish fear of inevitable pain showed itself. No, it's only indigestion. Say it's only indigestion. Say so, Mary. Say. And the little princess began to cry capriciously like a suffering child and to wring her little hands even with some affectation. Princess Mary ran out of the room to fetch Maya Bogdanova. Mon Dieu, mon Dieu. Oh, she heard as she left the room. The midwife was already on her way to meet her, rubbing her small plump white hands with an air of calm importance. Married Bogdanova, I think it's beginning, said Princess Mary, looking at the midwife with wide open eyes of alarm. Well, the Lord be thanked, Princess, said Ma Mary Bogdanova, not hastening her steps. You young ladies should not know anything about it. But how is it the doctor from Moscow is not here yet, said the princess, in accordance with Lisa and Prince Andrew's wishes, they had been they had sent in good time to Moscow for a doctor and were expecting him at any moment. No matter, Princess, don't be alarmed, said Mary Bogdanova. We'll manage very well without a doctor. Five minutes later, Princess Mary, from her room, heard something heavy being carried by. She looked out. The men's servants were carrying the large leather sofa from Prince Andrew's study into the bedroom. On their faces was a quiet and solemn look. Princess Mary sat alone in her room, listening to the sounds in the house. Now and then, opening her door when someone passed and watching what was going on in the passage, some women, passing with quiet steps in and out of the bedroom, glanced at the princess and turned away. She did not venture to ask any questions and shut the door again, now sitting down in her easy chair, now taking her prayer book, now kneeling before the icon stand. To her surprise and distress, she found that her prayers did not calm her excitement. Suddenly, her door opened softly and her old nurse... Praskovia Savishna, who hardly ever came to that room, as the old prince had forbidden it, appeared on the threshold with a shawl round her head. I've come to sit with you a bit, Masha, said the nurse, and here I've brought the prince's wedding candles to light before his saint, my angel, she said with a sigh. Oh, nurse, I'm so glad. God is merciful, birdie. The nurse lit the gilt candles before the icons and sat down by the door with her knitting, Princess Mary took a book and began reading. Only when footsteps or voices were heard did they look at one another, the princess anxious and inquiring, the nurse encouraging. Everyone in the house was dominated by the same feeling that Princess Mary, Mary experienced as she sat in her room, but owing to the superstition that the fewer the people who know of it, the less a woman in travail suffers, everyone tried to pretend not to know. No one spoke of it. But apart from the ordinary staid and respectful good manners habitual in the prince's household, a common anxiety, a softening of the heart, and a consciousness that something great and mysterious was being accomplished at that moment made itself felt. There was no laughter in the maid's large hall. In the men's servants' hall all sat waiting, silent, silently and alert. In the outlying serfs' quarters, torches and candles were burning, and no one slept. The old prince, stepping on his heels, paced up and down his study and sent Tikon to ask Mary Bogdanova what news. Say only that the prince told me to ask, and come tell me her answer. Inform the prince that labour has begun, said Mary Bogdanova, giving the messenger a significant look. 
Tikon went and told the prince. Very good, said the prince, closing the door behind him, and Tikon did not hear the slightest sound from the study after that. After a while he re-entered it, as if to snuff the candles, and seeing the prince was lying on the sofa, looked at him, noticed his perturbed face, shook his head, and going up to him silently kissed him on the shoulder, and left the room, without snuffing the candles or saying why he had entered. The most solemn mystery in the world continued its course. Evening passed, night came, and the feeling of suspense and softening of heart in the presence of the unfathomable did not lessen, but increased. No one slept. It was one of those March nights when winter seems to wish to resume its sway and scatters its last snows and storms with desperate fury. A relay of horses had been sent up the high road to meet the German doctor from Moscow who was expected every moment, and men on horseback with lanterns were sent to the crossroads to guide him over the country road and its hollows and snow-covered pools of water. Princess Mary had long since put aside her book. She sat silent, her luminous eyes fixed on her nurse's wrinkled face, every line of which she knew so well, on the lock of grey hair that escaped from under the kerchief and the loose skin that hung under her chin. Nurse Savishna, knitting in hand, was telling in low tones, scarcely hearing or understanding her own words, what she had told hundreds of times before, how the late princess had given birth to Princess Mary in Kishinev, with only a Moldovian peasant woman to help instead of a midwife. God is merciful, doctors are never needed, she said. Suddenly a gust of wind beat violently against the casement of the window from which the double frame had been removed by order of the prince. One window frame was removed in each room as soon as the larks returned, and forcing open a loosely closed hatch, set the damask curtain flapping and blew out the candle with its chill, snowy draught. Princess Mary shuddered, her nurse, putting down the stocking she was knitting, went to the window and leaned out, tr- leaning out, tried to catch the open casement. The cold wind flapped the ends of her kerchief and her loose locks of grey hair. Princess, my dear, there's someone driving up the avenue, she said, holding the casement and not closing it, with lanterns, most likely the doctor. Oh my God, thank God, said Princess Mary. I must go and meet him. He does not know Russian. Princess Mary threw a shawl over her head and ran to meet the newcomer. As she was crossing the anteroom, she saw through the window a carriage with lanterns standing at the entrance. She went out on the stairs. On a banister post stood a tallow candle with which guttered in the draught. On the landing below, Philip the footman stood looking scared and holding another candle. Still lower, beyond the turn of the staircase, one could hear the footstep of someone in thick felt boots, and a voice that seemed familiar to Princess Mary was saying something. "'Thank God,' said the voice, "'and father?' "'Gone to bed,' replied the voice of Damian, the house steward, who was downstairs. Then the voice said something more, Damian replied, and the steps in the felt boots approached the unseen bend of the staircase more rapidly. "'It's Andrew,' thought Princess Mary. "'No, it can't be. That would be too extraordinary.' And at the very moment she thought this, the face and figure of Prince Andrew, in a fur cloak, the deep collar of which, covered with snow, appeared on the landing, where the footman stood with the candle. Yes, it was he, pale, thin, with a changed and strangely softened but agitated expression on his face. He came up the stairs and embraced his sister. You did not get my letter, he asked. And not waiting for a reply, which he would not have received, for the princess was unable to speak, he turned back, rapidly mounted the stairs again with the doctor who had entered the hall after him. They had met at the last post station. 
and again embraced his sister. What a strange fate, Musha, darling. And having taken off his cloak and felt boots, he went to the little princess's apartment. All right, there we go. Another chapter down, and look who's back. Look who's not dead. Look who's back from the dead. That's what I should have said. Uh, <laughs> Prince Andre, just in the nick of time to witness the birth of his firstborn. Heck yes. All right, people, have your say about this one over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.